Welcome to the Digital Transformer Podcast, your number one podcast on digital innovation, transformation, and venture building. We help entrepreneurs and corporate innovation leaders like you gain the knowledge and skills you need to build the leading digital businesses of your industry. My name is Kilian Karasch, and today I talk to serial entrepreneur and super angel investor Stefan Schubert. Stefan went from bootstrapping his company on Vista to taking it public in 1.5 years, and since exited three more companies. As an investor, he has since invested into more than 60 companies, including unicorns such as Spotify, Airbnb, Zooplus, and Audibene, and has supported firsthand the rise of many category-leading companies in Europe. In our episode, we discuss how you can maximize your chances of building a successful company and of achieving true financial freedom, the best indicator for sustainable product market fit, and how to nail sales and minimize costs as a startup from day one. So with no further ado, let me welcome Stefan. Stefan, awesome to have you. You told me that there is, besides unicorns, a different type of company that can be very interesting. You not called them camels. What are, what are they? And why are they so promising? Yeah, actually, I think it's something that we brought into the German market to say um, that we like to invest in camels. And camels are totally different from unicorns, as you just said. Camels don't need much food and water. Camels always have a little reserve on their back. Camels are very resistant, can adapt to all kinds of different climate situations. And they can run very fast. If you've looked at a, if you've watched a camel race, you will find out that they're actually very fast animals. So um, I think this taking this, this metaphor um, as opposed to unicorns leads to a different kind of, uh, of startup companies we look at. And we have found that this is also a very promising approach, both for founders and investors. But of course, these companies work differently. And I think that's something we will talk about in this podcast today. Specifically, what you're referring to is that successful companies don't necessarily have to be those that raise crazy amounts of mon money, have a billion dollar valuation, but there's also, let's say those camels are, might actually be way more attractive to founders if you, if you think about it. Because if you own 50% of a company that has 150 million exits, it's actually way more worth for the founder than as if you own 1% of a 2 billion exit. Absolutely. And that's, that's probably where we come from. Unfortunately, success in the startup industry in the last 10 years has been defined as how many employees do you employ and how much fundraising, uh, how, much, how many funds were you able to raise. And that's sad because um, it assumes that only if you raise a lot of money, you have built a successful company. But there are many examples out there which are not so much in the press where founders haven't raised any money at all, they have bootstrapped entirely, or where they have raised maybe 2 million, maybe 5 million, maybe 10 million euro, but have built companies in the size you just mentioned. And as you say, owning 50% of a 150 million exit is maybe more money than owning 1% of a billion euro exit. So I'm not saying that unicorns or raising a lot of money is not successful. You can be very successful. They're very good examples. But... I think there's a different approach that some founders should look at because not every business out there, not every business model out there has the potential to become a unicorn. I think that's one thing. And the other thing is the probability to become successful with a camel is much higher than the probability to become successful with a unicorn. Uh, 
And the reason is building a unicorn typically means you have to build very, very large companies. You have to go international very early. You have to scale very fast to get these amounts of funding. And that's just very tough. Not many people can do that and not many business models allow you to do that. Whereas in a camel, you might have a chance to build something in a niche market with nice margins, not much competition or no competition at all. And you have six, seven years to do this. And maybe it's enough if you do it in your own country, like you do it just in Germany or just in France. And this company still had a value of 50, 100 million euro. So it's, it's easier to do this. It, it has a higher probability to become successful. And there are more camels actually out there than unicorns. If we look in the last 80 years of post-World War II entrepreneurship, most of the companies we talk about today the, the German Mittelstand or the, the larger companies that exist today, they have started as camels because at that time, venture capital didn't exist and nobody ever thought about valuing a, a company with 2 billion euro two years after founding. So the wealth, a lot of wealth in this country or in Europe has been created by founders that eventually or initially built camels. And so I think there's a, it's a very promising approach. And there's a high probability to succeed with this business model. But it means, of course, and that's what we probably talk about, to do things differently. Right. Because it's not so much the focus on necessarily raising money, money crazy fast and like scaling the company, scaling the employee count, but more about really focusing as well on, on profitability in the first place. And what I think is always so interesting is that these companies that or these founders that do these, let's say, camel exits, they hardly get any media attention. Like, talk about Ben Chestnut who bootstrapped MailChimp and sold it for $12 billion. And the co-founders are right now worth each $5 billion because they own the majority share of the company. But they get hard, uh, hardly any media attention. And so I think it's... it's for me personally, as, as a first-time founder back at the time, it was also like, of course, you build a unicorn company, right? You get VC money and so on and so forth. So I think it's super important to also like show that there's, let's say, a different type of business you can found. And I think it also has a lot to do with, let's say, the, the, the understanding of what an investment is, so to speak. Because if you look at the, the companies you mentioned, uh, the SMEs that right now are hugely successful have been around for yeah decades uh, or even centuries in some cases. They really focus more on, let's say, the, the classical term of investment. And I think over time, there has, like right now, younger people have a perception that investment into a startup is just like to fuel the burn rate in case of delivery hero. I mean, they went public. They're, they're having huge investments, but they're burning a lot, right? And so what's your take on that? Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting what you say. Um, actually, I think building a unicorn means two things. One is look at your business model. The typical unicorn, what a, a large VC would look at, is a large market which you can disrupt and where you can grow very fast. Growing very fast a lot of times means you need performance marketing to attract customers. You need very large scaling sales organizations that are typically fueled by a lot of marketing. The problem with this is you need a lot of money. And the problem is typically these kind of markets and ideas attract more VCs and more founders. So look at the, at the quick e-commerce market. You had three, four, five companies being founded within a year. And it's actually more a question of who can raise how much money, how fast in, to decide who will succeed. When we look at camels, 
we typically look at niche markets. We look at solutions that work in one industry, software that is written for a very special problem in a very specific industry. Um, these companies tend to be alone with this solution. Um, they tend to be innovative instead of disruptive. So they typically look at things that exist already in this industry and they do them better or cheaper or faster, but they don't disrupt the entire way this industry is working. And the most important thing is these camels typically have business models that have high contribution margins. And what I, what I mean with contribution margin is actually what you learn when you have a, a business bachelor in your first semester, which means revenue minus your cost of goods sold minus sales and marketing. That's what we call contribution margin two or contribution margin three. And camels generate high contribution margins. So from 100 euro revenue, you will keep 20, 50, or even 80% of each euro as contribution margin. And this contribution margin helps you to, to actually finance your organization. And to so you have, you have operational cash flow that helps you financing your organization. And it eventually, when you grow, helps you with more revenue to pay your fixed costs and become profitable. And the neat thing is a lot of times people say, if you don't raise money, if you don't burn, you can't grow. And that's not true because if you have a, a business model where you generate with each additional revenue, 50% or 50 cents of additional contribution margin, that's actually the fastest growth you can have. The problem is you need a sales approach and a marketing approach that allows you in, in scalability to generate these 20, 50, or 80% contribution margins. So to wrap it up, one, it's the type of business model you look at and, and the market you look at and how, how disruptive and hyper growth it has to be. Two is really this aspect of, of contribution margin. And then three is use the contribution margin to grow faster, but to cover your operational fixed costs after a certain time. And that means these companies should be profitable in year three, four, five. We have companies that have been profitable from the first day on. And then we come to the aspect you just said, if you're in this kind of business, investing means you're investing in hardware, you're investing in a new piece of software, you're investing in a team that can accelerate your growth, but you're not investing in actually paying for the burn rate, which you cannot cover or which you sometimes don't cover at all from your contribution margins. If you have a business model where the contribution margin, as I defined it, is negative, then investing means you pay your salaries, you pay your office rents, but it doesn't mean that you have a contribution margin, but you want to grow faster and you have an idea how you can you know, accelerate growth with two million in a new team, in a new country, in a new piece of software. Oh, it's a very different mindset, and, and that's important to understand. What I found beautiful in this aspect is um, Manuel Müller, who was also uh, on this podcast before and whom you actually invested in. He said, or he described it that way that he said, hey, you basically first have to build the engine, the motor. And once you have the motor and once you know exactly, let's say, how much torque it generates, how it, where it gets you in a way, then you can use capital if you need it to, let's say, pour additional liquidity in it because you know exactly, hey, this money that I'm put it, pouring in right now is going to get me that far in, let's say, two to four years. And then you have a totally different, let's say, approach to also building your business because you know precisely, hey, this is going to get me somewhere. Whereas just 
as or as opposed to just throwing money at par- problems, hoping that they're going to be solved at some point. Yeah, well, a lot of times it's pouring in money, hoping that additional revenue will solve, solve the problem. But if additional revenue leads to um, even less contribution margin because you have a negative contribution margin, then your problem becomes bigger. And what Manuel says is, is, exactly, is exactly right. And that's exactly how they did it and why Emma was so extremely successful. And the point is actually that this engine. Yeah? Um, Emma took two years to understand how you can find an efficient way to do marketing with, these, with the mattresses they sell in a direct-to-consumer business. And when we sold Emma and you comp- we, we, we were able to compare publicly available data, let's say from Casper, which spent 57% of each euro revenue on marketing, the numbers that Emma have were much, much lower. And that was, was the success. I mean, imagine if you have 300 million revenue and your marketing expenses on each euro are just 20% less. That means you have 60 million more cash each year to invest in your organization. If you have 30% less marketing, it's 90 million. Yeah? And that's the leverage. And I think exactly what, Emma, what, what Manuel says, Emma first found a way to do the efficient marketing and then started actually scaling the business. It took two years. It was a pretty boring and a tough time for the first two years. But then all of a sudden, it really picked up and was a very successful exit. Now, you also have your personal experience building a camel. You basically bootstrapped on Vista and within 1.5 years took it public, which is an incredible achievement. I'd love to dive deeper into three elements that you said are crucial when it comes to building camels, notably what it means for the product, what it means for sales and what it means for costs. But let's first start with the first point or maybe briefly give an intro to what you do at OnVista and how did you ultimately achieve that kind of success building on these factors just mentioned. Yeah, well, first of all, we have to understand that when we founded on Vista in 1998, we, we came into a situation that was pretty comparable to what we had in 2020. So a situation where there was a lot of money in the market and where you could take com- uh, companies public um, at a very early stage of their development. So bringing the company public one and a half years after founding the company was pure luck and it was pure timing, just like we had it in the last two or three years. And, and that's maybe the problem with the VC market in the 20 years in between and the, probably also the VC market in the next 10 years ahead of us, that if this timing is not there, this window of bringing a company public is not there, we probably have to build different uh, companies. So that, that's more on the sideline. We never, when we founded the company in 1998, we didn't even know that venture capital existed. And to be honest, in, in Germany, you had maybe two, three, four venture capitalists out there, which just themselves started. So... This was not a, a situation where we founded a company and could say, let's raise venture capital. We founded the company by saying we have to do it with our own means. Maybe we find one, two, three investors, um, business angels, but the entire idea of, of uh, venture capital was not on our mindset when we founded the company. So we were prepared to do this for 10 years and we knew we could only spend the money we get in. And I think that's with a product. We built a very neat product. Actually, our idea of how to generate money with this product was uh, absolutely unsuccessful because what we built was an engine where you could find um, and compare warrants, so options on, on stocks for private investors, and you could find the best warrant to invest in. And we thought that users were willing to pay for that. Well, 
three months later, we knew they would not pay for it. But we found other ways to monetize it um, because we knew we had to we had to make money. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to finance our business. So we constantly, all three founders, I think we spent 70, 80% of our day trying to sell products and to get revenue in. And the company was entirely steered by cash flow. So we always looked at when can we buy a new computer? Well, when this customer pays his bill, yeah? different mindset. And, and the, the IPO was just luck. Uh, we, we knew there was a window when the timing was excellent to bring this company public. We did the IPO, we got a lot of money in and then the financing was done. But still, if you look after nine years, we had three exits out of Onvista. And these entire nine years, the burn rate was 4 million euro, although we raised 40 million euro in the IPO. All these numbers are small today. Uh, today, each of these numbers has a zero behind it. That's, that's inflation. But still, we didn't spend the 40 million euro we had the, on the accounts because we wanted to build a company. We always looked for a company that had more revenue than it had costs. What did it mean for the product? That was your first question. Well, first of all, we built the product in a very simple way, did our own programming, worked with students and brought in, today you would say the MVP public. And with the MVP, we tried to generate revenue. And when customers bought it, then we took the money to actually make the product better. We didn't have a CTO. Um, I was my own CTO, but we were able to talk to programmers and to, to software engineers to build the product the first way. Sales, I already talked about it. I think sales in any organization must be the top priority of any founder. And we had three founders which worked for sales every day. So we tried to find ways to monetize this business. And we actually found over the time three, four different approaches, how to make money with the tool we had built, and then had ideas how to build new tools. That's why we had three exits at the end. So I wouldn't say at that time we had a camel in our mind. At that time, we did not have unicorns in our mind because they didn't exist. Nobody talked about it. We just knew if we want to survive, we have to make more revenue than costs. And that's how we came to this. And I think 20 years later, 25 years later, this is still a very valuable approach. And even, and maybe even the most valuable approach now that we see that the stock markets and the, the easy money in the VC market is not there anymore. So probably in the future, founders will have to look a lot more into this idea of building a camel instead of a unicorn. And I think one point that you mentioned last time we talked was that today it's much more easy to ultimately get started, to build the MVP, as you said, because there are so many different solutions out there. Cloud computing back then didn't exist today. Like you can just host your service wherever you have all different types of design software that really ultimately almost creates an MVP for you or a click dummy and so on and so forth. So I think that's something that these days, I think with way less costs, you can get to that MVP and then iterate with your customers to understand, let's say, what it takes to, to also monetize the product. One interesting question that came up here from the audience was, what are the best indicators for a sustainable product market fit? Tough to say. Um, I would answer the question a little bit differently. What we like to look at is how hard is it to sell the product? So product market fit is a concept which is hard for me to understand because it's it's suggerates that if you just have a product that fits into the market, it just sells itself. But that's most of the time it's not true because um, when you say... At the time we built our company on Vista, it was harder and much more expensive to build a product as opposed to today. That's true. On the other hand, winning users in the internet was much cheaper than today. 
because our website just went viral. So that's, that's maybe unfair to compare. But again, what we look is how hard is the sales approach? And if, if we go into B2C, the sales approach most of the times is very, very, very hard because the only way to generate users today uses to the website is to do performance marketing on Google and Facebook. And these algorithms they use are written to make the founders of Google and Facebook rich and not to make you rich. Yeah? These algorithms pull all the contribution margin out of your P&L. That's how they are designed. And the moment you have a second company, a second startup doing almost the same thing and bidding on the same keywords, only the company with the best contribution margin will have a chance to survive and to make some profit with this. So that's very, very hard. And, and that's why Emma took two years to find out how they can actually sell mattresses in an efficient way to end consumers. And they ended up with having 20 different marketing channels just instead of Google and Facebook. If you look at B2B, it's totally different. In B2B, you have to look at things at who actually is the person you should talk to. How, how hard is it to identify the person that will buy your product? Does this person have a budget to buy your product or is it an investment where they have to say, we have to create a budget for next year and, and have to find out if next year maybe we can do an investment in your product? Is it a product you're selling which one department in this company can decide or do you need the IT department and the Betriebsrat and the CEO and many other in this company that have to decide to do it? Does the company just can add it to the things they do today. So do they put your software on top? Do they put your product on top of what they do today? And they have an advantage by being cheaper, faster, or whatever? Or does it mean they have to change the entire way they do their business, which is disruption again? And of course, selling to more people, having a, a, line, a long sales cycle of 18 months, asking a company to create a budget for your sales pitch, asking a company to entirely change the way they do business. It's much, much harder than if, to go, if you go to someone and say, you're doing this and this today, I have something that costs you a lot less money than what you pay today and you save 50% of your effort. So again, incremental or, or um, innovative versus um, disruptive or, or revolutionary. And that is what we look at when we talk about product market fits. Is it something that fits into the market that people need it and will sell, will buy easily and fast from you? Or is it something but you have a very, very hard sales approach. Now, would you say, you seem critical about B2C market. Would you say there's still, let's say, big opportunity in there? Or is, let's say, are camels mostly focused on the B2B market? I would say Emma is a camel and it's B2C. Um, but Emma, when I talk about camels, it's a mindset. I, I, I don't say it's B2B camels or B2C camels. Emma was a mindset. Emma was successful because they... They had a mindset of building the engine first and finding out how they could sell these products efficiently before they scaled. And the same is probably true with Audi Bene, which was also a B2C business we invested in. I think in general, if you look at large B2C business ideas today, it's harder because there's so much competition on the keywords in the performance marketing. And if you raise so much money, the, the idea of, of growing very, very fast eventually becomes very, very expensive because of this inefficiency in performance marketing. So if we look at B2C businesses, we want to see creative approaches on how to acquire customers. And it's not true that the only way to acquire customers is performance marketing. There are many, many other ideas how you can generate users, end users, B2C customers to buy your product. 
And if these ideas exist and they are creative and, and we have the feeling that the costs you have for that, your sales and marketing costs are much lower than the contribution margin one you have with your product, then it's absolutely valuable for us to invest in these kind of businesses. Unfortunately, in the last years, B2C had most of the times was just Google marketing. No, you've probably seen a lot of different pitches, so to speak, that the um, that you that you look through. What are some of the most creative ways in in the B two C segments beyond the classical keywords uh, that you say? Hey, those were actually interesting ways to to let's say market the product to 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 the end customer. Yeah, I mean, a very nice way is to go uh, mouth to mouth, which Onvistor actually did. We went to fairs where we met private investors. They hooked up on our website and then they talked to other investors and it just went viral. Okay, that's pretty tough today because there's so much content out there to be the viral app or the viral website out there is very, very hard. But sometimes you have approaches where where you do it in the physical world. You You go in bars and talk to people while they're in a situation where they would buy this product. The best way actually to, to get consumers, if you find a neat way to do this, is to find them in a physical environment where they could use your product in that specific moment. So in a bar where they need something they could use in a bar or in an art fair where they could use an app that informs them about art pieces or whatever. Those are creative ways. They're seldom and they're tough to generate. But if you find them, I think they're still a neat way to do B2C business. To be very honest, we haven't found very many in the last 10 years. So it's 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 rare and it's tough to do. And that's then ultimately what also differentiates the excellent founders from those that are, let's say, not so successful. Uh, they might both be excellent, but there's an easy way to scale and that's putting pouring 100 million euro in performance marketing. You will have fast growing revenue, but probably no contribution margin. Um, and then there's the tough way of saying, I first have to find out how I find my um, my consumers in a cheap way and then pouring money in. Or you don't maybe need any money at all because we find out that each customer puts contribution money. So they're both probably excellent founders, but it's a totally different way to build your company. And most of the times, yes, the Camel founders will be more successful. The problem we have with this definition of success is Again, success has always been defined by the amount of money you raised and by the valuation your company has. Success a lot of times has not been defined by what is the actual exit price you get when you sell your company and how much money does the founder get into his pocket in cash. Perfect example, gorillas right now. Well, you know, they sell the company for 970 million euro, but they have 1.2 billion in, in, in liquidation preferences. So easy mass, there will probably not be much money left for um, those that invested very early, including the founders. And then most of these valuation is not in cash. It's paid in shares of another company. So at the end, when you sell your company, what counts is the cash you get into your account. And we have seen now a phase where book values, valuations where someone said, I'm willing to invest in this company on a pre-money valuation of XYZ where these book values have been taken as personal wealth. And I think that's not true. At, at the end, it's when you sell your company, the amount of cash you get. And their probability for Camel founders is higher because they are not so much dependent on the good timing of IPOing such a company. Because the problem is most of these um, unicorns have to be IPOed because they're high valuations and they're so expensive 
that there are not many strategic buyers left who would buy these kind of companies. Which for a camel, if you invest, or if you basically as a strategic buyer have to invest 50, 100, 150 million, it's way easier to, let's say, sell the company. So you ultimately, as such a founder, you have more, or even as an investor as well into these companies, you have more exit possibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Each, every Mittelstands company in Germany today buys 5 million euro tech EBIT from you at a good valuation of an EBIT multiple of 20 if it's a business that fits to them, to their core business. Every PE loves business that grows with 50% each year and generates stable EBIT margins when he has the idea that in another four or five years with some buy and build or going international, he can grow the business. He would definitely prefer this over the type of business they have bought in the last 10 years from, let's say, our mobile producing companies or so. So absolutely, there's, there, there are many exit channels for camels. There are very few exit channels for unicorns. Now, we talked about what it means building a camel for the product, uh, notably that it's really about, let's say, first honing the product to make it as easy as possible to sell to the market. We talked about the B2B and the B2C context here. In terms of costs, you said ultimately there it's it's crucial because you finance it out of the cash flow. Is there something else that founders need to be conscious of or need to take into consideration when building such type of companies? Yeah. On the cost side, I think it's two things. One is spend the money you make. So many times when you invest in a in a startup, you see situations where we have a plan to grow revenue by 100%. And so we plan to raise our costs by 100%. A year later, you find out costs were in plan, 100% up. Revenue was 50% up. In, in a good camel management, I would try to turn this around and say, let's look each month, is the revenue actually coming? If yes, we hire the people, we invest in our costs. If no, we should also make sure that the cost is only 50% up. So that's one thing. And the other is... Take a little more time, like Manuel said. Yeah, Don't take the first offer you have. Um, ask your lawyer if it really has to cost 60,000 euro to write this, um, this documentation, or maybe you find someone else who writes it for 10,000 euro. So ask two or three people when you buy something. When you implement new processes, try to invest a couple of thoughts, maybe two months to automate the process, to make it more efficient and not just, you know, do everything very fast, and then have a total mess you have to clean up later on. So it's more painful. It's a little slower, but you can save probably 50% of the costs you would have when you have to grow fast. And I think these two things can make a big difference. Now, another question that was brought about the audience and connecting to what we just talked about is you invested in a lot of different companies. Talking to founders, what are the factors that you pay attention to when considering an investment? Of course, we look at excellent founders like everyone else. So we need founders that are driven by their idea, intelligent, hardworking. Those are the attributes I think everyone, every investor is looking for. The part that comes on top is we try to find founders that convince us that they're actually willing to build a company. Founders that are con that are willing to become wealthy through an exit. And 
this is hard to find out, but we talk to them very frankly upfront about it. What is what is your goal? And you see this oftentimes in the business plans. And when they talk about what's next, you know, they have a funding round and, and one founder says, um, and we're going to raise 20 million euro uh, in six months from now. That's a different thing than saying, I think we need 3 million euro to build this company profitable. And we would like to start with 1 million euro now and find out if we're on the right track. So this is the, 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 we call it the company building mentality. That is something we try to find in our founders. Um, and you sometimes see this in the CVs. You find it out when talking to them, but it's also something we have to try by investing and working together with the founders. How, how do you see it in their CVs? For example, founders that have a lot of stamina that have in their past shown that they can really bite and, and, and be sustainable and, 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 and bite themselves through tough situations in sports or in, in personal tough situations or in school or whatever. This is an idea how we can find it out or how we, where we can see it. It doesn't mean that it always works. And looking back at your entire journey, both as a founder as well as an investor, what are, let's say, the what is the number one thing that you would suggest founders they should do when they want to build successful camel companies in order to enhance their personal wealth ultimately? Think about how your sales works. I think that's eventually the most important thing because if you look at statistics where you say that, let's say you Google the 10 most important reasons why startups fail, you have things like no product marketing fit, we talked about that, or not enough funding or all kinds of these things. If, if you go through this list of the top 10, at the end, seven of them could actually be solved by selling your product and generating revenue. Because then you don't need the funding. Then you know the product fits because the customer did buy it. Yeah? So we talk very early in the process and probably 50% of the entire um, due diligence process is actually on how do you sell this? What's your sales approach? How does your CRM work? How do you approach customers? How is your sales cycle? Um, what is the margin you generate with this? And at the end, if you have a sales cycle of 18 months and you generate 1,000 euro revenue with this customer per year, probably doesn't work. If you have a sales cycle of 18 months, but then at the end, the customer signs a ticket of 2 million euro a year, it might work. You just have to find out how many customers are out there and how high is the probability that each month or each quarter you can sign one of these customers. So I would say from my experience, um, the, the most successful or the, 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 the highest probability, probability of being successful in a startup is if you have understood how you can sell your product and how you can scale the sales in an efficient way. Again, having or, or generating contribution margin three with your sales. We explained the process of what a camel is. Now, if I'd be very critical, I could say, okay, unicorns are the real big companies. Camels are literally just Fry's booth where, you know, you make a couple of hundreds of thousands maybe or a million in revenue. And that's what you then call a business. And I think that's a perception that a lot of founders have when it comes to, let's say, businesses that are not completely VC financed. But I don't think it's necessarily the case, is it? No, it's not. First of all, let's look at the definition of unicorn. Unicorn is a company that is that has a value of more than a billion euro and has not been uh, exited yet. So these are 
book values. These are situations where a VC was willing to invest on a pre-money pre or post-money valuation of a billion euro. We have to look at exits. At the end, when you talk about your personal success, we have to look at exits. And there are not many exits in Germany or even Europe above 1 billion euro, except for the last two years where we were able to bring companies to the stock market at high valuations, at very high valuations. But look at all these valuations. They have come down 70, 80, 90%. So the exit was just the day of the IPO and ever since a lot of these stock prices go down, which actually was the same thing that happened to us in, in, in 2000. Our first valuation, the first day on the stock market was 500 million euro. One and a half years later, the company was worth 35 million euro and we had 40 million euro cash in our bank account at a profitable company. So this goes in both ways. Yeah? As a founder, you have to look on your exit and um, there are not many unicorn exits. Now, talking about camels, it's also important to look at the numbers a little more. If you sell a company for, let's say, 100 million euro, I would say this is a huge success and it's a large company. 100 million euro is a lot of money. If you're still an owner of 50, 60, or 70% of the shares. And that's, that's the important thing here. Liquidation preferences and the number of shares you give away is much more important for your personal wealth than the valuation of the company during a financing process. Which is a hypothetical in the first place. Yeah, it's, and it's just book money, yeah. So at the end, it's the exit price, maybe minus liquidation preferences, depending on if they're participating or not participating. And then the shares you have in this company, and you have to multiply these two. And if you multiply it with a probability of having a billion euro exit, which maybe happens once a year statistically in Germany, except for the last two years again, and having a 100 million euro exit, then the expectation value on this camel exit is probably much higher. And again, 100 million euro exit is a lot of money. 200 million euro is, is, is huge money. And, and Emma, uh, talking about Manuel again, this year will generate 800 million in revenue. I don't know what this company is worth, but that's a hell of a lot of revenue and a hell of a lot of money. And they did all this with just very, very few dollars of investment. Yeah. So if you want to build a company, if you want to become wealthy with this company, I think it's absolutely legal to think about this model of building a camel because... It's not only like fry restaurants. There are nice middle-class companies which can generate a lot of personal wealth and are huge successes. Awesome. Thank you, Stefan, for having joined us and for this very different take on what else is possible out there to build companies, highly successful companies. Now, for those who say, hey, I'm onto something that might be a camel, that might be interesting for you, how can they reach you? Uh, we have a website, sts-ventures.de or you will always find a way to contact us on LinkedIn and just pop us an email and ask us if you can send us your pitch deck, just like with any other investor out there. Easy to get in touch. And we are very, very happy to talk to founders that have great ideas and want to build a company. Awesome. With that being said, guys, contact Stefan if you have something. And yeah, I hope to see you soon, Stefan. All the best. And let's stay in touch. Thanks, Kilian. It was great talking to you.